Um, welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of this church. And as you may know, uh, the past couple of weeks have been an interesting few weeks for me and, and our family. We got to share last week about uh, something going on in my life. About a month ago, I had an outpatient procedure, very basic, very routine, but one of the effects of that uh, has been this unique and hard and heavy, sudden bout of anxiety in my life. Uh, we got to share that with the church last week in a spirit of vulnerability and transparency, wanting to say that this is something that we are going through and not exactly sure what it's going to look like. Uh, but the only reason I bring that up today is, one, just to, to say it if some of you weren't around uh, last week and to mention it. Uh, I'm, uh, you can send Jeff emails, don't send them to me. I'm not going to answer any questions about all that. But <clears throat> I wanted to say thank you. Uh, this is turning out to be a, a real family. This is turning out to be a real church uh, where we can have that sort of conversation, where we can talk about difficult things, where we can uh, put a spotlight on weakness rather than just strength. You probably got to know more about me in those few minutes than you had gotten in the past eight or nine months. And I'm not sure what that says about me, but it does say something about uh, the desire to bring one another into each other's lives and the power and the potential and the strength that comes from it. So a huge thank you. There's been an incredible outpouring of just love and support and prayer. would ask for it to continue. Just praying for me. My wife has been an absolute incredible champion. I'm wondering, what is wrong with this guy? He seems so fine, and then the next minute, it's such a hard moment. And so she's been an incredible champion. Her name is Danielle. You can pray for her and our three kids. Other thing that I asked you to consider is paying attention to the pain points in your own life and in the lives around you. This could be a unique time in our church's life where we start to pay attention to each other, say things and share things that probably haven't been shared or said. And so I know that that has been happening. I've already heard stories from community groups this week, building on last Sunday. And so let the Spirit of God take you where He wants to take you. Let Him take us where He wants to take us. I'm going to jump back into this series that we started quite a few weeks ago. We're calling it Reenchantment. Faith in a Secular Age, we're going to be looking at First and Second Kings through the prophets of Elijah and Elisha, the narrative surrounding their lives. One of the things that I was able to take you through, if we have this little chart, is this big idea of what reenchantment could look like. One of the things I mentioned is that there's this concept of the unenchanted age that gives way to an enchanted age, then a disenchanted age, which might be today. Faith in a Secular Moment. You've got the first phase, which is, I don't know a whole lot about who God is. There's no God reality in my life. God is a foreign part of my experience. There's an unenchanted experience. And then there's this breaking in of grace, where the gospel starts to become real, where you start to have a personalized experience of grace and the gospel and of Jesus, and it can start to feel like an enchanted age. But because of all the things warring against faith, eroding faith, pushing faith to the sidelines you may end up in a disenchanted age where you say, I became a Christian. I expected that God was going to be on the move. He's going to be doing things in my life, but I haven't felt the power. I haven't felt the presence. I felt disenchanted. What would it look like to enter back into a re-enchanted moment where the Spirit of God is on the move? Now, admittedly, when I was thinking and praying through this series a couple of weeks ago, I would say that almost exclusively, I was thinking through a singular individualistic lens that this might be a moment for you and you and you and me to have our lives re-enchanted. But through what God has taken me, the path that God has taken me over the past couple of weeks, I have really felt that this is a communal moment 
where re-enchantment is not just something that you and you and me get to experience, but it's potentially something that's going to sweep through an entire group of people, that we decide to be re-enchanted by the Spirit of God, to sit at His feet, to listen, and to have something amazing happen. Look inside your worship guide. There's a quote at the top I'm going to read and then take you to 1 Kings 18. That quote on the inside cover from Paul Gould, here's what it says. Most of us don't experience God in such a concrete, ordinary way. Something seems to be missing from the equation. Going to the Bible, what's missing is the work of the Holy Spirit. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see God in the world the way Jesus does, and then to invite others to see God in the same way. In other words, re-enchantment is a work of the Holy Spirit. And let me pray to that end, and then we'll read together. Jesus, we pray that you would do the work that we cannot. I pray that you would re-enchant all of us as a group of people with the power and potential of the gospel to change our lives, even if we've been in church a long time, even if today is the first time in a long time. I pray that as a group of people coming broken and humble and needy, we'd hold our hands open to you, saying, do what you will, change us deeply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to read for you from 1 Kings uh, uh, chapter 18, 1 through 16, if you want to look with me. I'm going to read, um, I think, let's see, from 16 or 17 all the way through 39. That's not what's printed in your, in your worship guide. Once it stops being printed, you can look to the screen. The rest of it should be up there. All right, let's read together from verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, "'Is it you, you troubler of Israel?' And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull from themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord." The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and it filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is God's word for us today. What an incredible story. A couple things to get, catch you up. You're not far behind. This is only uh, realistically sermon number two in this series. So just a little bit of background. As we turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, the nation of Israel finds itself divided. They are in a huge socio-political mess. They're also in a religious mess. The northern kingdom of Israel is being governed by a reckless king named Ahab. And under his rule, King Ahab has led the nation of Israel into a season or a series of spiritual decline, syncretism, tolerance, polytheism, but namely the worship of a foreign Canaanite god named Baal. The introduction that we were given to King Ahab tells us that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings before him. That's the introduction we have been given to the moment and to this man and to this king. So not only are we being given an introduction to a, to a king named Ahab and to his wife named Jezebel, the exact same time in chapter 17, we were given a strange introduction, a unique and sudden introduction to a prophet by the name of Elijah, whose name, if you remember, happens to mean, my God is Yahweh. That's his name. So every time he introduces himself, he says, hey, who are you? You're the new guy in the block. Yes, my name is, my God is Yahweh. Every single time he comes into the presence of the king, comes into the presence of the people, every time his name is mentioned, they are reminded of the course that they're following, following another God. The introduction that we're given to Elijah, the first time that he speaks, that he makes his way into the scene, he finds his way to the most powerful man in the nation of Israel, who finds his way to the king, and he has a message of judgment for the king. He literally says to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Three years, no rain, no dew. This is a judgment upon the king, his decision making upon the people. And the irony, of course, is that Elijah's pronouncement is this frontal assault against the pagan Canaanite deity Baal because he is the rain god. He's the God of the storm. He's the God of fertility. He is the God of the crop, which means that he's the God who provides life. And Elijah's main objective in these early stories is to prove to the king, is to prove to Jezebel, is to prove to the people of Israel, and it's ultimately to prove to you and me that there is only one God, and that only this one God is the only opportunity that any of us have for this big concept of reenchantment. So the three things I'm going to walk you through from this text are number one, the call, number two, the test, and number three, the response. 
The call, the test, and the response. The call, if you're a note taker, is to a single-minded, white-hot devotion. Let me show you what this means. The call to a single-minded, white-hot devotion. Glance again at verse 17. Verse 17 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. You can tell that after 36 months, not much has changed as it regards Ahab's perspective. 36 months is a long time without rain. We go six or seven months in San Diego. We start to groan. The land starts to groan. 36 months have gone by. And Elijah is assuming that maybe after 36 months, this guy might start to think to himself, man, I'm supposed to be following the rain God. Where's the rain There's no rain in our land. This guy who's supposed to be, my God is Yahweh, he pronounced this thing over me and our people. It has been 36 months with no rain. You know what's starting to happen? People are starting to complain. People are starting to starve. People have nothing. So after 36 months, Elijah finally makes a face-to-face, has a face-to-face conversation with the king. And you might think that the king would say, look, man, 36 months, enough's enough. We realize the error of our ways, but nothing has changed. He accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. He doesn't repent. He doesn't relent. He doesn't admit that he's made some poor leadership decisions. He does not admit that he has a wrong marriage with the wrong woman who's led him and the people astray. There's nothing of that in the story. There's only this fierce digging in of the heels and accusations blaming Elijah. And so you have to love what Elijah does next. Essentially, he says, man, I was hoping 36 months would be enough time for you to wake up. But here's the deal. We're going to go. We're going to go to the top of a mountain. We're going to have a contest. We're going to have a showdown. I want you to bring all of your people, all of your prophets, all 850 of them. He says, I'm the only one left standing up for Yahweh. Bring all 850 of your Baal cronies and your Asherah cronies. Bring them to the top of the mountain and bring all the people. We're going to have a showdown. And the God who answers by fire, once we build two altars and have two sacrifices, the God who answers by fire He's the real God. I mean, that's pretty bold, right? That's pretty amazing. And so Ahab, he's thinking to himself, man, this is a pretty lopsided affair. So he actually agrees to the terms and conditions. He's in Baal territory. Mount Carmel is in Baal territory. It's right on the edge of Tyre and Sidon. So he's going, man, this is our place. This is geography that's to our advantage. He's got the numbers on his side, 850 to 1, and Baal just so happens to be the God of thunder and lightning. And so if you want fire from heaven, he's thinking to himself, man, this is our contest we're in. And you can imagine the scene. In my opinion, I mean, it feels like a circus. 
They're probably selling popcorn and cotton candy, and they've got all these little vendors, and they're going, this is going to be a showdown on the mountain. This is between Baal and Yahweh. We've got 850 to 1. Maybe they're selling hummus and pita. I don't know really what they're selling in the Middle East that long ago. Probably was not cotton candy, but it seems like a scene in my mind. Thousands and thousands of people coming to see what's about to happen. But here's the point. Before any of the festivities begin, glance at verse 21. Verse 21 tells us that Elijah came near to all of the people and he said to them, I kind of envision it in a whisper or the loudest shout you can imagine. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Here is this incredibly direct call to action to this single-minded, white-hot devotion. He says, people, how long are you going to waver? How long are you going to limp and dance between two opinions? The message translation puts it like this. He says, how long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. Now, you may admire Elijah's boldness towards the people, but admittedly, this is not a very PC call to action. We live in an advanced, modern, educated, open-minded, pluralistic, tolerant society. Couldn't Israel have it both ways? A little bit of Baal and a little bit of Yahweh. I mean, at least at that point, they've got all of their bases covered. And then the question is, well, can't we have it both ways? A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of New Age enlightenment, a little bit of old-fashioned work ethic, a little bit of religiosity, a little bit of morality. Can't we pull those things together and say, what's the big deal about this white-hot devotion? Why the exclusivity? Why the narrowness? And some of you who are listening may be new to Christianity, or some of you have been Christians for a long time. You say, this is why I don't like organized Christianity, because what you're explaining to me, even from the Old or the New Testament, seems like it's a glimpse or a clear picture of something that feels very narrow and very exclusive. I'm uncomfortable with an exclusive Christianity. I'm much more engaged with a Jesus who feels so much more open. I like Jesus, but I'm not that interested in a narrow Christianity. Well, let me ask this question. Was Jesus narrow? Were Jesus' claims exclusive? Let me walk you through a couple of things that Jesus has to say. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you lean in and go, come on, Jesus, why you got to be so narrow? Two masters, what's this whole thing about two masters? I mean, I like you. I like what you have to say. I've got some affection for you. But you're telling me that there's got to be a narrowness to my affection, to my heart, to the way in which I engage with you and prioritize you? And he would say, absolutely. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great and first commandment. You got to be thinking to yourself, man, that's a lot of love. All my mind, all my heart, all my strength, all my soul, you want all of me? And he'd go, absolutely. In John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does that mean? It means if you have affection for him, there is a way of life that follows from it. It's not up to you. 
It's not up to me what it looks like to be a Christian, to live out Christianity in a pluralistic society. It's not easy, but it's not up to me. He says, if you love me, follow my commandments. So narrow, Jesus. And then John 14, 6, a very famous one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, did you mean a way, a way of life? No, 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 the. You mean a? No, no, the. No one comes to the Father? No one. But through him. And here's the point. Jesus was the only person in the history of the world who could remain narrow and exclusive without being dictatorial and manipulative. You see that? He was so definitive. I am the way to God, the only way to God. And yet, he was so loving. And the question for us, friends, has to be, are we potentially limping between two opinions? Are we dancing between two lovers, feeling battered and bruised and confused about the direction of life, not knowing how to handle the things that come towards us? What does it look like to waver? What does it look like in your life to potentially dance? Now, some of you, I want to say, do not be ashamed to say, that is absolutely me. You come into a place that's called a church, you start looking around thinking that nobody's wavering, nobody's dancing, nobody's limping. Part of what I want to show you is that the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian knows they've got a limp. Everybody else just kind of pushes it aside. A Christian steps into the room and says, man, I waver all of the time. I'm dancing between things. But the reality is, is that God is starting to show me the dance. He's showing me what's more true. He's showing me a better step. That's the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian says, I waver. I like to waver. I like the two different dance partners, right? But the moment you begin to admit that is the moment that there's a, this dramatic potential for transformation and change. What would it look like for somebody to crack open the journal of your life? What would they see? Would they see this white-hot, exclusive devotion to Jesus? Where you say, Jesus, I'm not there yet, but man, I want it. I want to follow you. There's days where I'm very, very lukewarm, but I, you are coming for me. Or is this this kind of like, kind of an apathetic, limping between opinions? I mean, that's what's happening in this story. Before any of the fireworks start, Elijah pulls the people together and he goes, listen, if Baal is God, follow him. Give him everything you've got. But if Jesus is God, give him everything you've got. All of it. And see what happens. This white-hot, not lukewarm devotion to Jesus, white-hot, exclusive affection that will color in everything. Let me keep moving. The call to this single-minded, white-hot devotion. Number two, the test. Very plain and simple. Whose God has power? Okay? That's the test. Which God has power? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Elijah puts it all on the line. He essentially says, let's see which God is the real deal. You're divided in your affections. Let's have a showdown on the mountain right now. Let's discern some truth from some error. Whichever God brings fire from heaven, 
He's the real God. Super Bowl was last week. I don't know how many of you were voting for Kansas City. Got some Kansas City, some Chiefs, okay. Got some other disappointed people. We won't mention all that, right? San Francisco. You know that at the beginning of a big game, captains come to the middle, they flip a coin, they see which team's going to get the advantage. This is what I want you to imagine right now. It's like Elijah walks out by himself, they send out the captains of the Asherah team and the Baal team, they flip a coin. Actually, Elijah goes, you know what, don't even flip it, take the advantage. You can choose first, choose what altar you want, choose what bull you want, prepare it on your own, in your own way. I'm just going to stand on the side and wait, you get advantage. And so they go, sounds good, we'll take it. So they go and prepare their bull, they put it on the altar, they chop it up, they're waiting for fire from heaven, they start calling out from morning until noon, right? So we have a noon time stop deadline right now. They're calling out over and over in unison as a choir on their own, and the text literally says, but there was no voice and no one answered. And old Elijah, he's been watching all morning until noon. And he kind of saunters over and he goes, it's been a couple hours, fellas. What's going on with your God? Is he taking a nap? Is he checking his Instagram feed? Right? Is he at Vons? Is he at the beach? Maybe he's surfing. Right? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. That's what he says. Maybe he's relieving himself. What's going on with your God? (laughs) So it says he mocked them. And the next thing that we read is that the people, they kind of gird themselves up and they say, no, 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 our God will answer us. And so they start to call out even louder all day, all afternoon. And as evening arrived in verse 29, we read, no one answered, no one even paid attention. And right there, I want you to pay attention. I want you to notice carefully because you get a glimpse of how one-sided the relationship really is when we give our hearts away to other gods. This is how one-sided everything really is. Remember that an idol can be anything. It could be a friend. It could be a spouse. It could be an ambition. It could be a career. It can be anything at all. But an idol can be defined as anything that determines the shape and direction of your life. Think about that for you. What is determining the shape and the direction of your life. The Bible is trying to show us over and over again what it's really like to let someone or something other than Jesus determine the shape and direction of your life. What we find out is that the relationship is always one-sided. It's always taking, never giving, always demanding. You are always at his disposal. It's always making the excuse that even though I could not satisfy you this time, I will the next And if it's not me, if it's not that thing, then move on to another. Anything but the real God who will satisfy you. And you notice that clearly in this text, man. They are crying out to their God, but no one's paying attention. Many of you are newly graduated. Let me talk to you for a moment. You've been told to choose a career, work hard, make the right decisions, find the right career path, get the right job, so that you can have potentially fair amount of money, and you can have a good life. And so you move to San Diego, you start a new career, you move up this ladder, you land the right jobs at the right time, you fill up that bank account along the way. But at some point you stop and you realize that none of these decisions have actually made you rich in spirit. You have given your affections to something, 
but it has not transformed the inner dynamic of your life. Or you have been searching for that girl for a long time and you finally got her, but you are so insecure about keeping her at the center. It's taken you so long to get her or him, but now what do I do? It's all sorts of things that you can put at the center of your life. The modern gods of our making they only judge us if we don't perform, whether it's beauty or our bodies or intelligence or innovation or leadership or relationship. If we don't perform, we're always held accountable. We are always judged. But then there's the stinging reality that this story brings out that no matter how much attention we give to this other thing, it's actually not paying attention to us because like Baal, it's not real. But now glance at verse 30, after this day of silence and an entire afternoon of no response from Baal, it's Elijah's turn. Glance at verse 30. In verse 30, we read, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and it filled the trench also with water. Listen, this is incredible. I completely misread this for a long time. My assumption when they poured water on this offering was that Elijah was going, look what my God can do. Right, you got a dry offering? I want you just to douse this sucker. I want you to pour gallons and gallons of water on top of this burnt offering. Watch what Yahweh can do. That's actually not what's going on. The number 12 is used more than one time in this portion of the story. There's an altar that's been broken down, and Elijah is the one in the story who takes the action to rebuild the altar. He goes, you have forgotten who you are. This altar was made in the name of the God of Israel, whom you have received your name and identity from. He reminds the people of who they are. So he slowly takes 12 stones, and he rebuilds. Now, I'm not very good at math, but I did be able to multiply four times three. There are four water jars, and, and Elijah says, fill them up three times. Four times three is 12. 12, again, is very symbolic. Not only are there 12 stones being rebuilt for the altar, but there are 12 buckets or jars of water being poured on top of the burnt offering. And the point is simply this. Elijah, he does not do the pouring. He puts the jars in the hands of the people. And he says, go pour it on the offering. And he says, do it again do it again. And it is this stunning visual reminder that there is supposed to be power, there's supposed to be fire, there's supposed to be glory, there's supposed to be sweet intimacy between God and his people, but all they have done to this scene, added to this scene, is they have dumped water on this burnt offering. It is a vivid reminder of the wayward limp, the dance, the waver of the people. They're the ones who are given the task of pouring the water. They're supposed to be fire. But all they've contributed to this scene is their sin. But then Elijah begins to pray. Look at verse 36. 
And in verse 36, he says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Gosh. No dancing. No groveling, no shouting, no groaning, just fire from heaven that consumes the stones and the water and the dust. And the linchpin is actually, it consumes the burnt offering. Because the burnt offering was an offering that was made when atonement was necessary. In other words, it's an offering of forgiveness. Every other God of our making only has the capability to condemn, to judge, and to ruin. And what this is saying is that the God of Christianity alone has the ability to bring fire from heaven that provides not condemnation, but forgiveness. It is a burnt offering, and the Lord takes it all. In 1 John 4.10, we read, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what this story is pointing to, the uniqueness of this God who doesn't come to condemn, but he comes to forgive, and he comes again. He comes like fire from heaven. But the unique thing is that when Jesus shows up, he's the one who gets consumed. See, he gets burned up. He's the one who comes and goes, man, there is a complete mess out there. All of you are wavering and limping and dancing around, but I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem, heal, and forgive you. There's no God like this. There's no God who says that I will be the, the offering. I will be the substitute. I will be the thing that comes and takes away that which you have done. This is the only God you'll ever find who uses his power to redeem, to heal and to forgive. And friends, that's where reenchantment starts. That's where this theme begins, is when you see that, you feel it, and you go, man, I am a dancer. Come in and begin that work of redemption and healing. The last part is very short. We have the call, we have this very unique test, and then you have this response. Look at the very last verse. The very last verse says, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. <clears throat> at first glance, it might look like the people's hearts have been changed. But as we read on through this series, you're going to quickly find out that this was not a pivotal moment of transformation in the nation of Israel. They fall down for the moment, but they do not turn back. They do not have a white-hot devotion for God yet. In this story, the people's hearts are still going to wander. And this is when we are clearly reminded that, that God in Jesus did not come to make good people, uh, bad people good. He did not come to make uh, bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. There is this uniqueness to the gospel narrative that says God is on the move. He is here. He's come to redeem and to restore, even if your affections aren't quite white hot yet. Grace is the only thing that can jumpstart affections like that. And what I want you to see is that in community, you're going to develop this single-minded, white-hot devotion for Jesus because in time, you'll come to see that's what he's got for you. That's how it starts. 
This is what you're going to feel in your heart as together the Spirit of God is on the move with us and for us. Last quote. It's in your introduction as well in that reflection section by Madeline Langall. She says, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by telling them how wrong they are, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I love this theme. Let's be of one heart. Let's be of one mind together. If there are other gods, go for them. Pursue them full-heartedly. But if Jesus is the one, let us together have a heart re-enchanted by grace. Let's pursue him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this profound, one of the most unique stories in all of the Bible. This powerful showdown between two supposed rivals. But in reality, there's no rival at all. There's no voice from heaven. There was no bail response. The people jumped and they shouted and they sang in unison, but there was no one paying attention. I know, Jesus, we admit that that is often how we live our life. That's how I live my life. Wavering or dancing, going back and forth between things that I want to define me. I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to uproot that part of my life, uproot that part of our lives. Show us how unique you are. Show us where re-enchantment begins. I pray no one would feel ashamed to say, I dance, I limp, I waver. You already know that. But I pray that we would be a community where those things can be discussed, where grace is sweet and fresh, and where you're on the move. Do more than we can ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.